Morning. You look great. Let's pray together. God, we've uh, prepared our hearts now by singing to you and declaring of your great love, for, uh, declaring your great love for us. God, now we come to your word um, with humility. God, to the best of our ability, with ears that are ready to hear and eyes that are ready to see, hearts that are ready to behold wonderful things from your law. We know that as much as we try to tune our spiritual ears to you, that we need you, oh God. And so would you be the one that speaks loudly and that draws us in today? In Christ's name, the people of God together said, Amen. Have you heard of uh, Trader Joe's? Does anybody know Trader Joe's? Somebody, somebody, somebody said amen, had a religious experience there. Trader Joe's is this grocery store that we had back in Phoenix. And it was, it was, it was, it was odd. I mean, they, they didn't have a lot of selection, but they had kind of some organic stuff and some different things. And they had a very fine wine there called Charles Taylor. Has anybody ever heard of Charles Taylor wine? Charles Taylor. We used to call it Two Buck Chuck. Uh, two Buck Chuck was uh, a, a bottle of wine that you could get at Trader Joe's for less than $3. And it tasted like it should have been less than $2. It was really bad. It was just horrible, horrible, horrible wine. And what I want to do this morning is contrast Two Buck Chuck, which tastes like swill, with a 1787 Chateau Margaux. 1787 Chateau Margaux... Uh, is about a $250,000 bottle of wine, between $250,000 and $500,000. It's the most expensive wine ever sold at auction other than at a charity auction. There was a Screaming Eagle cab sold for, uh, for $500,000 at a charity auction one time. There was a collector in the late 1980s that had a bottle of 1787 Chateau Margaux. He was bequeathed that bottle from a grandparent, but it originally came from Thomas Jefferson's private collection of wine. He brought it to the Four Seasons Hotel because he had an annual gathering of a bunch of wine connoisseurs that all loved that particular varietal of wine. And he said, you know what, this 1787 Chateau Margaux, I'm going to open it tonight. And he did. And then a waiter bumped it, and it crashed and exploded on the ground. No more Chateau Margaux. It's funny, if you take the labels off of those two bottles of wine, the Chateau Margaux and the Two Buck Chuck, you probably couldn't tell the difference between the two glass bottles. But if you tasted what was on the inside, rest assured, you could tell a difference. Why? Because it's what's on the inside that counts. It's, on the ins- it's what's on the inside that counts. We don't care so much about losing the bottle itself. We don't care so much about the bottle breaking. We care far more about what's on the inside. You know, the same goes for God. It's what's on the inside that counts. The Bible says that man looks at the external appearance, but God looks at the heart. And when Jesus shows up on the scene and begins to inaugurate his kingdom and begins to do these signs, particularly in John chapter 2, which we'll get to in a minute, he wants to teach us this very simple truth that it's what's on the inside that counts, that God cares about what's on the inside. He's not so concerned about what's on the outside. 
Let me preface John chapter 2 for a moment here, and then we will open our Bibles together and read it. But the nation of Israel, prior to Jesus coming on the scene, religiously speaking, spiritually speaking, had grown overly concerned about what was happening on the outside. They had grown overly concerned about obeying the law and adhering to rituals and jumping through hoops and doing all the right things and saying all the right things and going to the temple and worshiping. And some of those things weren't bad things. In fact, they were things that God commanded them to do, but they were going through the external motions without any internal devotion. They had become legalistic. And in the 8th century and throughout all centuries uh, preceding Jesus and even into now, God pushes back up against legalism because legalism is all about what's on the outside and we just established it's what's on the inside that counts. And one of the very first prophets that spoke out against what was happening in the nation of Israel, that they had become about these external things rather than an internal reality, was the prophet Isaiah. And we're going to read this prophecy from the the prophet Isaiah and listen to how aggressive this language is when God begins to speak out against people going through external things and not paying attention to what's going on inside. Look what Isaiah says. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this transformation? Trampling of my courts. So they're coming to worship God, and he's calling it a trampling of his courts. That's pretty aggressive, isn't it? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination. Man, is that a $2 church word there. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly together. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, which are things that they were actually commanded to do. Look what God says about them. My soul, say this word with me, hates. Ooh. Because they had grown so concerned about the external and not the internal. What was on the outside, their behavior, not what was on the inside. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. What's God saying? Simply this. It's what's on the inside that counts. It's what's on the inside that counts. You're paying so much attention to what's on the outside, and I'm concerned about what's on the inside. So in John chapter 2, where we come, which is where we come to in our study this morning, Jesus, his very first sign that he does to manifest his glory is a sign to tell us it's what's on the inside that counts. So if you have your Bible, I would love for you to open it up. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The scripture is up here on the screen. You can look on with a neighbor. You can use your iPad, your iPhone. The Bible is divided into 66 different books, some songs, some history, some all different kinds of things. There are four books in the Bible that are biographies of Jesus. Uh, three different, four different guys wrote them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've been studying this book of John all year. Each book of the Bible is divided into chapters, and each chapter is divided into verses. It makes it really easy to find stuff. So we will be in John chapter 2, verse 1. John chapter 2, verse 1 Reads this way, says, on the third day, now stop there, not just because it stops here on the screen, but stop there, look up at me. When you study the Bible, I want you to ask questions. I want you to ask the scripture questions. So when John says on the third day, we, on the third day of what? Third day relative to when? Third day of what? What's happening here? What we know from John chapter 1 and into John, now here into John chapter 2, that 
what we've seen Jesus do so far has happened over the course of seven days. Now watch this really, really closely because it's critical. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist is questioned by the religious leaders, by the priests and Levites. Do we remember this? Everybody remember this? Okay, the Jews send the priests and Levites out and they say, are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? Do you them sign? He's like, no, 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 no. Who are you? I'm preparing the way of the Lord. Day two, because on John chapter 1 verse 29, John says to us, on the next day. On the next day. So now we're on day two. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Chapter 1 verse 35. John says again, on the next day. So now we're on day, say that with me. Three, not complicated. Jesus calls his first disciples. Day four, because John 1 chapter, or John chapter 1 verse 43 says on the next day. So now we're on day four. Jesus calls more disciples, namely Philip and Nathaniel, and makes a decision. John chapter 1 verse 43 tells us that he's going to take a three-day journey from near the Jordan River where John is baptizing and go to Galilee. And so John chapter 2 verse 1 says on the third day of that three-day Day journey. Now, if there have been four days already and he's taken a three-day journey, it's not complicated. What day is it? Seven, right? Seventh day. Now, for us, 21st century Canadians, we go, okay, it's the seventh day. What does that mean? But for the first century Jewish mind, this would have been absolutely critical for understanding what God is about to do through Jesus in John chapter 2. You see, creation from Genesis chapter 1, was set out over the course of seven days. And on the seventh day, God did what? Napped, right? He, re- he doesn't nap. He rested. What that means is creation is complete. My promises are fulfilled. This is what I designed it to be. It is good. I'm thrilled. I'm glad. And I'm done. And I'm going to rest. See, this is what day 7, John chapter 2, verse 1, is about. It's the seventh day. God's promises are going to get fulfilled. His kingdom is going to be inaugurated. And he's going to give us some rest in John chapter 2. This is exactly what we've been talking about when we superimpose Genesis chapter 1 over the top of John chapter 1. We're reading scripture through scripture. Do you see it? We're using the Old Testament as a lens. This is what John intends us to do. And John tells us that on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana at Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. See, at this point in Jesus' life, he only has five disciples. Andrew, his brother, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John, the younger brother of James, sons of Zebedee, who is the author of this gospel. So he's got his five disciples with him. His mom is there, and verse 12 tells us that his siblings were also there with him. What that tells us is that they're likely at a wedding of a close family member or family friend. These are are tight people with Jesus and with his family. And back then, weddings weren't just like a one-time deal where you have a big wedding, you reception, everybody goes home. Typically in first century Palestine, virgins would have been married on a Wednesday, and then they would have partied for seven straight days. Weddings lasted a week. Like, is anyone engaged in the room? And can you, like, reinstitute that tradition in your wedding? Let's just have a seven-day celebration. We are going to celebrate you for seven days. And that's what would happen. And the family of the bride was responsible for providing food and beverages for everybody. And if that beverage, or if beverages ran out, or if food ran out, it would have been a really, really big deal. 
as they used to say in university, a party foul. Okay? Look what happens in verse 3. When the wine ran out, oh no. This is bad. And it's not just a party foul. It's not just a cavalier thing. This would have been shame for this family. This would have been, uh, people would have looked down on them in culture. This would have been a real mark on their record. This is not good what's about to happen here if the wine is really gone. Now, I've got a question for you just out of, out of curiosity. How many of you are from a country originally or have an ethnic background from, from a country that is mentioned in the Bible or there are cities in your country that are mentioned in the Bible? Greece, Italy, North Africa, Egypt, the Middle East. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, okay, good. Let me ask you a question now. <laughs> if you're at a family gathering and everybody's celebrating and everybody's having a great time and the food runs out, or if you're a wine-drinking family, some of you may be, some of you may not be, the wine runs out, who's the first person that's going to get that fixed? Your mother, right? <laughs> Listen to what happens. When the wine runs out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. <laughs> A first century Jewish mother feels responsible for everybody having a good time. Really shocker, shocker. Is that not the same today for those of you who are from those countries and from those areas of the world? Mom takes care of it, and she says to her son, they have no wine. I love what Jesus says. He says to his mom, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Stop there. So you're laughing, and I get it, but this term woman is not rude, okay? Like if we said to somebody, woman, today, like that's not good, right? That ends up getting you slapped in my house. So not really, but it, it sounds rude. In the original language, this is a term of endearment. He's saying, dear woman. In John chapter 20, when Jesus is on the cross and he's making sure that his mom is going to be cared for into old age, he uses the exact same word to address her. He says, woman, it's a, it's a term of endearment. It's tender. He's trying to be nice. And he says, look, my hour has not yet come. And the interesting thing about this term hour is that all throughout the book of John, when Jesus talks about his hour, he talks about his hour of glorification, when he is going to be crucified, resurrected, and ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And Jesus tells his disciples, when they celebrate communion for the first time, Passover, in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he tells them, I'm drinking wine now, but I'm not going to drink wine again until my kingdom is done, until it's finished, until it's consummated. So what he's saying to his mother is, my time to drink wine isn't here yet. When I'm the bridegroom and I call my bride, that is the church, to myself, then I will drink of the fruit of the vine. My hour is not yet come. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when my mom asks me to do something, even if my no is polite and reasonable, she does not take no for an answer. How many of you? Feel the same way, okay? Here's what my mom does. I don't know about you guys, but here's what my mom does. My mama asks, and, and it's funny because Mary doesn't go to Jesus and say, they're out of wine, would you please fix it? She just makes a neutral, they're out of wine. <laughs> just waits on him. It's the same thing my mom does to me. The trash needs to be taken out. And I say, woman, my hour has not yet come. <laughs> And my mom, here's the thing, she responds to me, 
She doesn't like actually continue the conversation with me because she's like, look, I'm your mother, you're going to do this. She actually will look at Amy and she'll go, I'm sorry, babe, we raised him this way. I'm really sorry that he's this way. And the funny thing is with Jesus' mom, she doesn't even continue in the conversation with him. Look what she does. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) It's almost like you can feel her rolling her eyes like my hour is not yet. I am savior of the world, born of a virgin. I was there, I get it you're going to tell them what to do and you're going to fix this. I'm, I am your mother. Okay, let's finish the text, verse six. Verse six, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. Stop there. If he has to tell them to fill the jars, what does that mean about the jars before? They're empty, okay? And they filled them up to the brim, keep going. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Of course they did. Of course they did. They knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, and I love this. (laughs) For those of you who have a party background, or a party foreground, (laughs) this will make sense to you. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Does that not make sense to you? Like, what is happening? These people are three sheets to the wind. They've been partying for several days now, and typically, you bring out bad wine when people are drunk, because everybody's like, this is really good. This is really, really good. That's what the master of the feast, that's what the master of ceremonies is saying. Yeah, that's what's typical even now in first century Jerusalem. This word drunk freely, just so you, just for some of you, you're like, I don't think there were people drunk. This word drunk freely is the exact same word in the original language that Paul uses in Ephesians 5 when he tells us do not be drunk on wine. Exact same word. Exact same word. So we can't escape it. They were hammered, schnookered, sloshed. Overserved. Okay. Says, then the poor wine, but you have kept the what? Look at this. Ah, yes, the good wine until now. Finish the text. This, the first of his signs. Here's the first thing I want you to know, Jesus says, about me. Here's the first thing. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples, say this word with me, believed in him. Here's what Jesus wants us to know, and we're going to unpack this together. He wants us to know it's what's on the inside that counts. It's what's on the inside that counts. Go back to verse 6, and I want to show you how this works. Jesus, or John tells us that there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. The six stone water jars were used as ritual cleansing tools. The nation of Israel... Priests and Levites and religious leaders would always wash their hands before they did certain religious things. These were not bad things. These were not wrong things, but they were part of the Old Testament law. But they got so enamored with external things, they forgot about the internal things. Are you with me? They got so committed to what was on the outside that they forgot about what was on the inside. The word we use for it in church, or the word we use now in church is legalism. They were concerned more about the law than they were about grace. They were concerned more about 
doing the right stuff than loving people well. And for Jesus, when he shows up at this wedding, he sees an opportunity to explode legalism and explode it by taking these ceremonial washing jugs that represented Old Testament law and represented all these commitments that religious people had to do in religious stuff and shifting them and changing them and exploding their legalism. So he uses what represents legalism to teach them a lesson, and the lesson is it's what's on the inside that counts. Now, this is crazy because John gives us so much detail here. Look what he says. He says there were six stone water jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Okay, we're going to take the low number. We'll say 20, okay? Let's take the low. It's between 20 and 30, but we'll just take 20. How many stone water jars? Not complicated. How many stone water jars? How many gallons did they hold? Let's just say 20. Six times 20 is what? 120 gallons of wine. 120 gallons. I got 120 gallons of wine. There is five bottles, or there are five bottles in one, bottle, in one gallon of wine. So if you take five bottles times 120 gallons, it means that Jesus made 600 bottles of wine. And not just wine. Good wine. Silver oak. Like a, like a 92 Screaming Eagle Cabernet. I'm just off the top of my head here. Like a Lafitte. Like a 1727 Chateau Margot. <laughs> Actually, if the vintage that was like 1727, Jesus was like, no, this is 27 vintage. Like actual 27, not 17, just 27. That's the vintage. And that's a low number. That's a low number. And for some of us, we think, you know what? Wine wasn't as alcoholic back then. And that's true. Wine wasn't as alcoholic back then. It had about the same, num uh, same alcohol content as light beer does now. That's about what it was back then. So like Coors Light, what do we drink in Canada? Molson. It's swill anyway, but that's beside the point. So let's do the math in terms of beer. Some of you are already squirming in your seat. I know. Let's do the math in terms of beer. You know how many kegs this would be? 16 kegs. You want to know what... 600 bottles of wine looks like, by the way. <clears throat> Everybody's like, this is church. This is, what is happening here? Amy and I, every time someone else comes to our home and drink wine, because we do not, no, um, We've been saving wine corks for the last, this is about the last month of wine. No, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Uh, almost 11 years of marriage, we've been saving wine corks. And we save one almost every time uh, we have a bottle of wine. There are 550 corks in this little thing. So I'm still short after 11 years. I'm still short of the 600 on the low end that Jesus made. Wow, right? Wow. He makes a big statement. He, get, he makes a big splash with his very first miracle in the book of John to teach us that it's what's on the inside that counts. Now, now stick with me here. Now look up at me. This is critical. John chapter 2 is not about alcohol. It's just not. And, and I'll just, I'll just I'll, two apologies. One, I have at times used John chapter 2 to say it's okay to consume alcohol. That's not what Jesus wants. That's, like, your first sign on the planet is to help me understand that I can have a cocktail once in a while? Like, 
Do you think that's really critical for Jesus here? It's not about alcohol, so please don't use it as support for partaking, okay? Number one. Number two, there have been times, and, and I, this is a sincere apology, there have been times where I have treated the subject of alcohol in a cavalier manner from the pulpit, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Some of you have situations and addictions and you abuse it. Please don't use this as permission to continue in that behavior. We, we want you to be free from that and come talk to us and we'll help, okay? John chapter two is not about alcohol. John chapter two is about legalism. It's about empty religion. It's about paying attention to what's on the outside and not what's on the inside. It's about motion without devotion is what it is. It's about going through the religious motions and doing all the right things and saying all the, all the right things and being legalistic. And legalism is motion without devotion. Legalism is, is again, going, going through the motions and, and there's nothing in the heart. It's motion without devotion. And here's the unfortunate part. There's a legalist in all of us. There's a little legalist in all of us. There might be a lot of legalists in some of us. And Jesus, from the very first moment that he begins to inaugurate his kingdom, his very first sign in John chapter 2, wants to help us understand and be free of the legalism that's in all of us. So here's what I've done this morning. Legalists typically really love checklists. They really love to be able to check off all the things. I've done all these things right and I've not done any of these things. So legalists, just so you're comfortable this morning, I've created a legalist checklist for you, okay? I've created a legalist checklist to help you discover whether or not you lean into legalism, and all of us do, and maybe what areas of your life that you lean into legalism. So we're gonna discover it together, okay? We're gonna discover it together, and then I wanna give you the solution. Does that sound good? So, so here's my questions. We're just going to go through about 15 questions or so to help us under, understand or determine whether or not you're a legalist. Here, here's the first question. When someone else sins, how do I respond? When someone else sins, how do I respond? Because if I respond with anger and bitterness in my heart at someone else's sin, it's probably because I'm being legalistic. You know how grace responds? Not with permission, that's not grace. Grace responds with a broken heart. It says, you're walking away from God's best for you. He's got good things for you. His law is good for you. It breaks my heart to see that you're walking away. And if you respond with anger and bitterness, it's probably the legalist in you talking. When someone else sins, do you seek to control them? Do you seek to manage their behavior I see parents of adult children doing this really regularly. Instead of inviting their children to walk in grace and freedom and to learn from Jesus and to take on his easy yoke, parents of adult children typically, not typically, but sometimes are tempted to manage their child's behavior. I've even seen parents bribe their kids. I will give you money to stop sinning. That's the legalist in you talking. And we need to be free of it. I'm going to give you the solution here in a minute. I'm just helping you discover at this point, okay? When someone else sins, do you feel like it's contagious? If I get around those people who do that thing, if I talk to them, if I spend time with them, 
if I actually develop a relationship with them, a meaningful relationship with them, if I love them well, if I spend time with them, I'm going to catch it. I'm going to catch it. I know it. It's a legalist in you talking. How about this? When there is someone in your life that doesn't deserve God's blessing and they receive it, it's called grace, by the way. How does that make you feel? Do you go, well, you know what? Like, they, they never did anything to deserve that. In fact, they, 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 they did quite the opposite. They, they did nothing to deserve that. And what about me? And where's my, does that sound like the older brother in the prodigal son story to you? Yeah. It's a legalist in you talking. When you respond with anger, bitterness, upset, because someone else is experiencing the grace of God. Grace by its very nature is undeserved. How about this? Not just when other people sin, but when you sin. When you sin. And some of you are going, oh, I don't sin. Yep, that's a legalist. Okay. Um, when you sin, where do you run? Where do you run to? Because here's where the legalist runs to. The legalist says, I've sinned, and now I'm going to run to works to make up for it. Or, or you you sin, you do something wrong or something that's good, you should do, you fail to do it. Do you run to Jesus and to the cross and to the grace of God? Or do you take like a 48-hour break from God so it kind of blows over and then go back to him? <laughs> Some of you are laughing. On three, I'm going to have you raise your hands and tell me whether or not you, and you know what? Here's the other thing. We take, the, the, the length of break we take from God is directly proportionate to how bad we think the sin is, right? It's like if I'm double parked, I only have to take like a four-hour break from God, right? But if I yell at Kaya, like I gotta take like a five-day break from God, okay? How many of you have ever thought, I've done something, God doesn't wanna talk to me for the next little while until it blows over, one, two, three, go. Okay, it's legalism. You know what Grace says? Come talk to me. I wanna hear Come talk to me, not me, God. God, I want to I lavish grace on you. I rise to show compassion. Yes, you did something wrong, but repent. Let's move on. I want, I want, don't try to make up for it. You can't impress me anyway. That's legalism. Where do you run? You run to the foot of the cross, that's grace. You run to works, legalism. How about this? When you sin, when you sin, what do you believe about God and about yourself? What do you believe? Is your internal monologue self-condemning? Well, I'm just a mess, and I'm a, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a go eat a worm, and the whole thing, you know, I, I should be ashamed of myself. I'm stupid. Why did I do that again? God, there's no way God could love me. Ooh, ooh, ooh. It's legalism. What do you believe about yourself and about God when you sin? Keep going. When you sin, do you make extra rules? When you sin, do you make extra rules? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the epitome of legalists in Jesus' day, had the Old Testament law, but that wasn't enough for them. They added over 700 more rules to help them keep rules. Do you make rules for yourself to help you keep rules? That's legalism. It's interesting to me that one of the most challenging things even in the church today and talking talking about kind of gray areas and all that stuff is alcohol is the consumption of alcohol isn't that interesting that Jesus would use alcohol in his very first miracle isn't that funny 
it's like he was God or something and he knew it was coming, right? So here's the thing. A lot of folks make extra rules to help them keep the rule. The rule is moderation. The rule is do not be drunk on wine. That's the law, and God does that for our best interest. Nobody ever pukes over a toilet and goes, I am feeling the joy of the Lord right now. Like, he gave us that command for our good, for our best interest. And there are three different views about kind of uh, consumption of alcohol. One view is do so in moderation. You want to do it, I want to do it, whatever you want to do, do so in moderation. Don't get drunk. The next view is abstention. That means I abstain because my conscience won't allow me to do it or because I have an addiction problem or an alcohol abuse problem. That's a very, very biblical view. But when you take your conscience and apply it to somebody else, that's called prohibition. That means nobody drinks ever at any time. You've stepped over into legalism. And there is no biblical justification for the prohibition view. There is biblical justification for moderation or abstention, but not for prohibition. It's just not there. John chapter 2 is not it, by the way, because John chapter 2 is not about alcohol. It's about legalism. But just because John uses alcohol, we'll talk about it. But a lot of times we make extra rules to help us keep rules. Like God wants us to spend time in his word, so we make a rule. I've got to spend 15 minutes every morning or I don't feel good about myself. God wants us to pray because he wants to talk to us because he loves us. I have to pray every day and I have to pray this way. That's legalism. It's making extra rules to help you keep rules. How about this? When you receive grace, not just when you sin, but when you receive grace, do you feel entitled to it? You know what? That makes sense that I would be blessed today because I I, I was serving at a soup kitchen yesterday. And it's usually not that one-to-one. It's usually not that direct correlation. At least not, that's not what goes through our brain most of the time. But legalism tells us we deserve something from God. We've earned something from God. We followed all the rules. We did all the external stuff. And Jesus just wants to explode that for us. And he says, this is just grace upon grace. Not just grace, but grace filled up to the brim is what the passage says. Three more questions, and then we'll talk about the solution. First one is this. Are you overly concerned with being fed? I just, I, you know what, I just really want to be fed at church, and I really want to be fed in my Bible study, and I just, it just, you know, I like that sermon, but it really needs to go deeper. Deeper than the gospel? Deeper than the grace of God? There is no deeper than that. As deep as it goes. And some of us get overly concerned with, well, we need to really unpack the Greek language. Like, I mean, I, I can do the Greek, I can tell you in John chapter 2 and in Ephesians 5, that word for drunk is drunk. It's the same word. That's Greek. Does that help? Most of the time when people say, I really want to go deeper, here's what they mean. I want him to talk until I don't understand it. And then I'll go, hmm, that's deep. That's really deep. That's what they mean by that. And that's typically the legalist in us going, I, I just have so much Bible knowledge. I'm really being fed. I've really gone so deep that it must impress God. How about this one? When you're sitting in a sermon, you may be doing this right now, which is really unfortunate for you, but you're thinking to yourself, blank should hear this. I mean, Lisa should really hear this. I wish she was here. Or Scott, man, oh man, he needs this. Pastor Lucas, is this one gonna be online because I'm gonna forward? And you know what? Nobody ever fills this blank in with I, right? 
Like, I, I, this is really great. This is, this is exactly what I, I am, a legalist, and I'm going to repent and experience the grace of God and freedom. When you're thinking to yourself, blank should really hear this, that's the legalist in you. It's not, it's not okay, but God loves you. God loves you. He wants you to be free from it. Okay, here's, here's the last one. And this one, this one might, this one might mess you up a little bit. Okay, so everybody prepare yourself emotionally. I'm, seriously, ready? I want you to take a deep breath. One, two, three. In, out. Because this one might be really tough. When there's a party and people are getting drunk. When there's a wedding and people are sinning. In whatever, in whatever way that is. Do you get invited? Because if you don't, you might be a legalist. Like, listen so close, because th- this, one, this one made me a little uncomfortable. This one made me squirm a little bit when I was studying this week. Are you ready? People say, remember, remember the whole WWJD thing in Christianity? Remember that? Remember that? What would Jesus do? And we all wore bracelets. What would Jesus do? Here's the answer from John chapter 2, one of many answers to the question, what would Jesus do? Jesus would get invited to a party where people were drunk. And he would show up. Okay, I'm going to raise my hand when I ask this question, okay? Does that make anyone else uncomfortable? One, two, three. Eww. I know, I know. And he didn't sin. He maintained personal holiness. That's what I love about Jesus. But he exuded grace and kindness and joy. He experienced God's life within himself and shared that life with others. And the religious leaders, those who kept the law and jumped through all the hoops externally, You know what they wanted to do to Jesus? Kill him. And they did. But the prostitutes and the drunkards and the sinners and the gluttons, you know what they wanted to do with Jesus? Hang out with them. And they hung out with them so much that the religious leaders thought he was a drunk too. Or thought he was a glutton too. Or in our day and age, he was hanging out with gay people so much that they thought he was gay too. Or he was hanging out with those who were on the outside of society or, or those who didn't dress quite the right way or those who, you know, had their medicinal marijuana card and probably shouldn't, you know, th- those kind of people. Those are the people Jesus was hanging out with, so much so that people were like, I wonder if he's got his medicinal card. Has the gospel that you believe and the gospel that you preach and live out ever been mistaken for being far too gracious? Jesus's was and Paul's was too men and women this is what John 2 is about it's about Jesus entering into the picture and saying nothing that you can do or nothing that you can fail to do will make God love you more or love you less It's not about all those rituals. It's not about those ceremonial washing jugs. It's not about all the things that you can tick off a list. It's about God saying, I love you and I'm gracious and I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So much so that I provided my son as a perfect substitute. And in John chapter 3, just one chapter later, we'll see him hanging out with the legalist. (laughs) 
And we'll see him hanging out with prostitutes and drunks and tax collectors and thieves. Everybody gets called to the same place, and that's to the cross, to find a high priest who's able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses and not only dies for our unrighteousness, but dies for our dependence on our self-righteousness rather than the righteousness of God. Let's pray. God, for some of us, this message made, might have made us feel uncomfortable this morning. I pray first and foremost that there will be nobody in this place that would use John chapter 2 especially as a license to especially abuse alcohol. That all of us would understand that John chapter 2 isn't even about alcohol. It's about legalism. It's about trying to impress you. It's about the right rituals and religion and empty behaviors and about you setting us free from that and calling us into this gracious relationship with you. I pray, God, that you would loose the chains of legalism in the places where we have thought we were acceptable to you because we did the right thing or said the right thing. But God, that, you, that we would remember that you have ransomed us, rescued us, as the hymn says, we have a strong and perfect plea, just one strong and perfect plea, and that's Christ and Christ alone, not our works, and that you're transforming us every day. Remind us of that even now, O oh God, and set us free from the chains that bind us. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. Hey, let's stand and sing and respond.